Hi, I'm Lori Feathers, a bookstore owner and writer in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Sam Jordison, a publisher from Norwich in the UK. And this is Across the Pond. A podcast for readers of fiction eager to discover the most discussed and anticipated books on both sides of the Atlantic. All right, let's dive in. Hey, Laurie. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? What's caught your attention this week? Well, this has been kind of a story that's been around for the last month or so. I first read about it in The Guardian, and it's the story of the author, Jeanette Winterson, who I love, and I think you like her too, right? Her books? Oh, yeah. I I love her. I mean, I... I'm not going to go too far and say I, I love her without reserve because there have been books of hers that I've found pretty hard going. But wh- when she when she hits home, she really gets you you know right in the heart. The passion I love, and oranges are not the only fruit. Just wonderful, wonderful novels. Yeah, I read her most recent um, Frankenstein, and it was. I mean, what an imagination. Anyway, I'm, we're digressing. <laughs> so she made news because Penguin UK reissued a bunch of her backlist titles, which I think authors are usually very enthusiastic about because so many times all the attention is on their new novel and not enough attention to the backlist. And sometimes some of the older books go out of print. Well, Jeanette wasn't so happy with the reissue by Penguin UK of several of her backlist titles because they came out with new covers and kind of a a new scheme for them, but they were also, according to Jeanette Winterson, kind of uh, decorated with what she referred to as suburban blurbs. Um, and she is quoted as saying, I wouldn't buy one of my books with those suburban blurbs. And to prove her point, she made a video of herself actually making a bonfire and burning these new issues of her backlist books. And it's created um, quite an interesting little little discourse along the literary world. And a friend of our podcast, Tom Beer, over at Kirkus Review, in the latest issue of that magazine, wrote a little article about blurbs called The Art and Commerce of the Blurb. You know, authors are often asked to write blurbs for their fellow authors, and they're usually, you know, way over the top. But sometimes the publishers also blurb the books, as Penguin UK did in this instance, to Jeanette Winterson's disgust and wrath. So what do you make of it, Sam? What do I make of it? Well, uh-huh. I mean, there's a lot of things to say. I guess writing blurbs is hard, and I have a certain amount of sympathy for the publishers. But I also have considerable sympathy both for Jeanette Winterson and for her readers, because it does sound like they were treating them with disrespect, I would say. and Treat, treat, you know, treating the readers like fools and treating Jeanette Winterson like a fool and selling, selling it down. And if you give a writer the impression that you're aiming for the... It's hard to say. I mean, Jeanette Winterson has not succeeded in talking about this without sounding snobby. I'm desperately trying not to sound like a snob myself, but I don't think <laughs> I'm going to succeed. Basically... It feels like they're they're kind of they they're they're thinking what is the lowest common denominator we can appeal to? Let's appeal to that. Let's kind of suggest that these books aren't going to challenge you and they aren't going to be difficult and you'll be just fine with them. And it's Jeanette Winterson who is pushing boundaries in all kinds of ways, asking really difficult questions, both morally 
intellectually and in terms of form, she is a writer who pushes the envelope and to suggest otherwise just seems very wrong to me. And, you know, burning the books, obviously there are very bad associations with, with auto de fe and, you know, immediately you think of the, the horrible book burnings during the Nazi oppression. So it's an unfortunate thing to do. However, I mean, she she's so funny and kind of, you know, I don't think it's hard to attribute too much malice to her. You know, she's just kind of, she's angry and, but also kind of trying to be, she's, you know, she's funny. She makes me laugh and her books make me laugh. And it's this kind of thing that makes me laugh on them. And let's not forget, it was great publicity as well. Yeah, well, she's kind of known as being irreverent and as you as you mentioned, kind of boundary pushing and an edgy writer. I think she really made her point by by burning the books. I'm not sure that she meant it in any kind of political or historic no, way, no. but yeah, she's obviously disgusted with the way that they've kind of junked up her book to make it what she refers to as women's fiction of the worst kind. And she spelled women, W-I-M-M-E-N apostrophe S. I thought that Tom's article on Kirkus also, though, was quite funny because he talks about the author Gary Steigart, who has been known to have written like over 150 published blurbs. So he's he's blurbed uh, 150 books, basically, at least. And when asked about it, he was he was happy to call himself a blurb whore, <laughs> because so many times, especially when authors are are blurbing other authors' books, particularly, I find this when it's like authors from the same publisher, you know, because that's the easy, I guess, person or, or group of people for publishers to go to and say, hey, we published your book and now we're going to publish this book and can you say something nice about it? And so it does kind of get so often like really over the top. I mean, sometimes when you read what's on the cover of these books that another author has written, you know, you would think it's, it's like the most monumental piece of fiction to come down the road in 50 years. And most oftentimes, I, at least I find that it's just uh, a really exaggeration of the quality of the book. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I have oh, sympathy you, with you're, the you're thinking about, <laughs> about what, yes, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to diss publishers. You are one, I know. <laughs> and it is hard. I mean, of course, no one is going to put like a negative review or comment about the book on the cover. No, and I think I think there is something important to say here is that you have a duty n- not to mislead the readers. So, uh, you know, <laughs> books that I have published have had very enthusiastic blurbs, but you know, I really believe that about the books, and uh, I'm trying to tell the truth as I see it. Or I say I, Ellie, and me, my co-director, and I think that's part of the problem with the Jeanette Winston ones is that. Well, certainly Jeanette Winston thought that they were misleading readers. Yeah. Yeah. Misleading readers in a way that she particularly took umbrage of because it's it's not really the the readership of, of her books necessarily. Her books aren't aren't genre romance novels or something like that. So um yeah. Point well taken. So Sam, what's going on over there? Well, it's not so much over here as as everywhere. 
And, um, Uh-oh, yeah. what's going on everywhere? Well, this week, I'm, <laughs> I'm sighing in advance. <laughs> the, okay. The story, I'm sure an awful lot of our listeners will be familiar with Cat Person, a story that was first published in 2017, I believe, by Kristen Rupenian. And I'm going to I'm going to pause here, actually, Laurie, because I think you are one of the only people I know who, who has not read Cat Person and doesn't know very much about it. Yeah, so this is true. I mean, I've heard so much about this short story. I, was it first published in The New Yorker? That's where it became famous. Yeah, I think so. Okay. But it was like a viral sensation. I don't know. This was maybe like what what year did you say 2018 that sounds about right 2017 2017 so then the author she she included that that story i think in a short story uh, book a short story collection that was published here in the US last year and i've seen her name come up this week in the headlines and and to tell you the truth i don't know what's going on so wow. inform <laughs> <Okay>. me <laughs> so for your sake and the few other people out there who who haven't heard perhaps too much about this story. And forgive me if you have heard too much about it, but apparently there are new things to say, as we'll get to. Cat Person, yeah, it was published at the end of 2017, and it was a short story that really chimed in with Me Too. It told essentially the story of a young woman and an older man who start off in a relationship that seems quite cute and, you know, quite warm at first. but um, it disintegrates quite quickly and the, the woman doesn't want to have sex with the man in the way that he wants to with her. And the, the final payoff, and so close your ears if you are, are yet to read the story and want to, is that uh, the man calls the young woman a whore. And that's how the story ends? Yeah, and so it really... It, came out you know just as the me too was really gaining traction it really struck a chord can i ask a question yeah so you said that that she doesn't want to have sex with him in the quite the way that he wants to have sex with her so she doesn't want to have sex with him at all she was just wants a platonic or is there something like more kinky going on no uh, do you know what i fudge that slightly because i can't quite remember is the honest thing i haven't read it since <laughs> 2017 <laughs> But there's definitely, okay, I'm asking too many yeah, detailed questions. Yeah, you've caught me out. Oh, my God. I'm sure everyone who's who's read Cat Person and can remember is screaming at me now. So, like, <laughs> this is essential. And you're the, to be honest, you know, you're I the thought, expert in uh, this conversation. No, oh, well, I'm not. I mean, you know, I thought it was just an okay story and the ending was quite effective. And I didn't think much more of it personally, but then I had to think much more of it because everyone was talking about it. And um, people were talking about how real it was, you know, who this this male character might have been, possibly. And, you know, some people were taking it as a, as a literal story from life. And in back then, the, the author was explaining, you know, it's it's fiction. Um, uh-huh. And but this is this has come into focus again because an essay has just appeared in Slate uh, by a writer called. Alexis Nowicki, uh, forgive me if I said that wrong, um, N-O-W-I-C-K-I, anyway. It's a really quite moving essay. It's very beautifully written, and it's very 
gentle when there is potential for anger because essentially this writer says she saw herself in the cat person story as the female protagonist and there were there were all kinds of details from her life and including the fact that she had a relationship with an older man you know there were it was set in the same town there were places she worked that corresponded all kinds of little details does she know the author well, this is a question that immediately everyone was asking her back in 2017. You know, do you know this person? Is it about you? And she didn't. But her, her the, the person, the male half of the story had met the author and they had friends in common and there were correspondences. Um, and then, but the the... The major difference from the point of view of Alexis writing this essay is that, you know, the guy in the story was actually really quite a sweet man and was horrified that he might have might be the protagonist of this story. And he, he wrote to her and, you know, asked her, am I, was I really that bad? Am I, am I an asshole? I think he asked her. And then it gets even sadder because a few years later, well, in fact, um, recently during the COVID pandemic, although it's not specified how he died, but he passed away. And so all of this came to a head and Alexis Nowicki got actually in in the end, she got in touch with uh, Kristen Rupenian, the the author of Cat Person and asked her, you know, is, is this about me? And I'll, I'll leave it to, to our listeners to read the essay and, Kristen sends a, a really interesting reply saying, well, yeah, there are some correspondences and I'm a bit nervous about it, but that's that. And the essay kind of doesn't make any, it's very good at not making too many judgments and, and leaving it there. But of course, social media <laughs> is not so restrained. And the past few days have been just a, a horrible shitstorm of people making judgments and questioning the ethics of the author, uh, Rupenian, and, you know, saying this is, she's really crossed a line and in including these details and in using real people and all of this kind of really angry, aggressive attacks, again, on a female author. And it's always the female... Not always, but so often it's the female authors who get this kind of flack and people saying what they can and can't write and judging their boundaries. And when actually it's a, it's a really complicated situation, I think. And I don't know if I'm particularly able to, to make a value call on it. You know, it seems unfortunate, but it's also, you know, when you're reading a piece of fiction, you enter into a contract with the writer that you are reading fiction and they can make things up and so you if you choose to believe that it's definitely about someone's life that's really on you yeah so you said that the um the 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 guy the older man before he died he wrote some some correspondence passed between he and and Kristen, the author or the essayist or both the the essayist with whom he he had had this relationship okay yeah and they, they they'd since gone separate ways but it, it you know there's no hints of abuse or anything like that on his part and um so it seems really sad 
So what's, I, I think I know how you're feeling about it in terms of, you know, fiction's fiction and, you know, and someone that's writing fiction um, should be, have the liberty to, to write it how they, they choose and, and whether it has similarities to uh, people living or known, um, that's, you know, that's that. And it happens sometimes, but what is social media? I mean, mm-hmm. what's the temperature on social media? I mean, are people, <laughs> are people angry at, at the cat person author? Uh, yeah, or... do, I mean, do, do you have to ask that question? Yeah, the, I guess. What's the I guess. It's, I guess. Uh, it's a shit storm, right? Yeah. There's a lot of shouting and a lot of people, you know, who are convinced that they are the moral arbiters of everything, you know, who are so, so secure in their own goodness that they feel Righteous. able to point the finger in this way. Yeah. And I think that's a big problem, you know, one of the big problems, isn't it? That yeah. uh, people, people who are so convinced they're right. And once you, once you get that conviction, it makes, um, makes it more easy for you to, to cast the first stone, I suppose, to go, to go right back to the, uh, yeah, you know the I, original metaphors. I guess I understand the the righteous anger, and it is so often over the top. But it does make me sad. I have to say to to think that this elderly man, you know, kind of thought that he had been represented in the story and perhaps misunderstood. Is that is that a or mis mischaracterized? How what would you say about that? Yeah, I think it maybe in a way it's even sadder. In the, the way I read it was that he he was worried that he might have been an asshole. Ah, uh. um, yeah. When I don't think there there seems to be much evidence that he, he had at all. And I suppose the other thing I haven't really said that she talks about in this essay is that you know of course he was an older man, and there was discomfort about that in their relationship. And you know he was very aware of that as well. So that was a, that worry was already there. And so you can imagine if he thought cat person was about him, he would be feeling pretty horrified. Yeah. Wow. That's a, some story, and um, kind of feeling embarrassed that I don't know anything <laughs> about it. But yeah, now, I'm, now I'm certainly going to read the story and read the essay and um, yeah, and definitely. try to avoid most of the social media chitter chatter about it. Yeah, that's the way to do it. If nothing else, go to Slate uh, and read the essay because it's a lovely, thoughtful, considerate piece of writing. And of course, you don't have to agree with all of it, but it's it's very well done. So at least something good has come out of it all. Okay. Yeah. Good piece of writing is always a good outcome. Well, Sam, it was great talking to you. Thanks. All right. You too, Laurie. Today on Across the Pond, Sam and I are so happy to have with us Alex Phoebe, author of the book Lucia, which will be published in North America by Biblioasis Press. Alex, welcome. Hi. I'm glad you got my name right. That's good. Because uh, there's uh, another person very similar to me called Alice Fe- Alex Felby, uh, who is wandering around publishing uh, very, very similar work to me. Um, there's on Lit Hub at the moment, there's uh, an extract from Lucia um, up under this Alex Felby's name. No. So oh. 
Yeah. Sorry to hear I'm, that, but I have to say that <laughs> I I was given a tip off by your editor, yeah. Sam yes. Jordanson, <laughs> my co-host. So don't give me too much credit. Yeah. I won't, but I don't understand where people get this Felby from. Old Felby. There's far fewer Felbies than there are Phoebes. I mean, it's not a very popular name. <laughs> it's far more popular than Felby. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about um, Lucia. Okay. So Lucia was my third novel. Um, uh, second for Galley Beggar Press. It's a kind of novel in negative, I think. Uh, so it's about the story of Lucia Joyce, uh, who is James Joyce's daughter. Um, and the book essentially uh, deals with the process of trying to come to terms with someone who's been erased. Um, she was uh, a woman who spent most of her life in um, mental institutions, um, largely uh, against her will. Uh, and in the insistence of her family, um, and a woman whose public record has been tampered with um, after her death and during the time in which she was um, isolated from the rest of the world uh, in an asylum or asylums. And this book is is a, an attempt to uh, to kind of work through that. Um, I'd written a book before called Playthings, which dealt with um, the life of Daniel Paul Schreiber, who was a very famous case study for Freud, um, and he had written a, a, a kind of memoir. And this book was dealing playthings dealt with um, a period of his life that he hadn't covered by his memoir. So his final period of mental illness, which took place uh, up until his death, and playthings kind of built, wrote into that. And there was lots of material to go on, lots of things to to think about, uh, lots of pre-existent text to look at. Uh, and in fact, almost everybody uh, involved in psychoanalysis had written about Schreiber uh, in the 20th century. And I was kind of expecting the similar, something similar to be uh, true of Lucia Joyce, uh, being having such a famous father, uh, and particularly a father who had been biographized in various different ways throughout the 20th century. Um, but this wasn't the case. What actually I found when I was researching into the book was a complete dearth of information, uh, as if someone had tried to erase her. So this was about, I think, essentially, the, Lucia is a is a book both about um, her absence of a life uh, and also the conditions that surround that. So it doesn't really paint a portrait of her, as most people kind of assume a biography on someone, a fictional biography on someone is going to do. Uh, but instead, it, it it paints pictures of those things on the margins of her life, uh, particularly the the kind of abusive men in her life. Uh, I think that's about right. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, Alex, about those abusive men and, and particularly her famous father, James Joyce. Your depiction is not is not a light or positive one in terms of these men in her life, her brother, her father, James Joyce, and, and other men. So I wanted to kind of ask you whether or not writing about Lucia and trying to um, give her a voice or or a life from this erasure kind of affected the way that you view James Joyce as a literary figure? Um, well, this is um, one of those things. It looks like I'm trying to say something about James Joyce, okay, with uh, the, primarily that he was a bad person uh, and that um, unlike the kind of uh, hagiography that goes on with a lot of literary figures, including Joyce and Beckett, uh, that I didn't think he was a very saintly uh, human being. In fact, that I thought he was abusive. But that's not what I've done, I think. I think this is one of the, the criticisms that sometimes gets le uh, leveled at Lucia as a book. Um, all of the terrible things that I've said about James Joyce are present in Joyce scholarship. 
Those are things that people have said about James Joyce. They're people, they're readings that people have read into Finnegan's Wake. Uh, they're uh, readings that people have read into the Corn of Moor. Um, I think pedophilic is the wrong word. It's uh, hebophilic, I guess, tendencies in something like Ulysses. Um, particularly the fireworks display scene and uh, all these various kind of the sexualizations of um, young women and girls. Those are all things and the suggestions that have been made that there were incestuous relationships between Giorgio and um, Lucia. They aren't things I've invented for fun. Uh, they're things that, uh, as someone who has been uh, researching uh, Lucia Joyce's life, that I've come across and that I've found to be unspoken <laughs> in the material and rather like playthings playthings um as well as being a kind of uh, um, an imaginative exercise in thinking about schreber's late life it's also a reframing of um his psychoanalytic uh, treatment at the hands of people like freud and lacan uh, who failed to understand the role of women in his life and childbirth um, which given that he was a man who thought he was becoming a woman under the influence of God and thought he was um, going to bear God's children seemed to me to be something that that was missing from the things that people were saying about Schreber. And in the same way, I think that's that's true of Lucia. People have been bullied, were bullied out of um, saying things explicitly in the non-fictional material uh, on Joyce, uh, often by the Joyce estate, uh, and and that was something that I thought probably wasn't going to happen with Lucia because I have um, more generic freedom to uh, make things up. Okay, so I got treated in the same way uh, by people um, looking at um, the work because it's fictional. And consequently, I feel like I can say under the aegises of uh, of that kind of proviso things that other people have tried to say and then have, have stopped short of saying. Uh, if you want an example of this, and um, just... uh, sorry, yes, I'm, I will stop eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> to dance in the wake, um, <laughs> there's a there's a good biography of, of Lucia Joyce, uh, Carol Schloss's uh, To Dance in the Wake. Um, and have a look at that if you want to, to see where the majority of the kind of, uh, well, she's got excellent um, uh, a very rigorous biographer uh, with very good references. So if you wanted to see the reference for some of the more contentious issues that come up in Lucia, uh, they aren't my sick imagination. They're, they're the Joyce scholarship in general. So uh, to, if that answers your question, I'm not <laughs> sure that it does, Laurie. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. And just for clarification for the listeners, Giorgio is Lucia's brother. Yeah, correct? that's right. I mean, George, Lucia's brother was called Giorgio, certainly. Um, I can't claim that the character that exists in the pages of the book Lucia has any relevance to that character uh, okay. at all. There is a scene in the book um, quite early on where Lucia is deceased. Um, you kind of go back and forth in time with the book. A person that we, I think, are to assume is Giorgio is instructing a young man to burn this huge trunk of letters and photographs. And and uh, is that is that a part of the historical record that that all of these things about her and from her letters her correspondence etc a big volume of it everything was was destroyed intentionally destroyed is the correct word yeah so the the, the characters in there are a, a kind of completely made up um person who is doing the burning uh, and it would be Stephen Joyce um who uh, famously announced to everybody that he destroyed 
Lucia Joyce's correspondence and to a certain extent her medical records. He also quite vociferously said that he didn't burn them. Stephen Joyce was <laughs> Joyce's grandson uh, and the executor of Joyce's estate until very recently. He died recently. Uh, extremely litigious. Um, so he would um, basically repress and suppress any understanding of, of Lucia Joyce's um, life and documents around her, except for a few that exist in the Harry Ransom um, uh, archive, for example, uh, and would sue um, and well, suing is not the wrong word. He would uh, not give permission for people to use any kind of material from Joyce if they also then did said things that um, he didn't want them to say about Joyce's character, about Joyce's family life, about Lucia Joyce in particular. So that essentially there's a there's a kind of I'm not getting my own back because it's I don't have a personal stake in this, um, but it's a certainly certainly a kind of fictional representation of that fact. I wanted to talk about a fascinating way that you set up the story of Lucia Joyce. And it's chapters that begin with a, a quite a different story taking place at a different time in a different place. And it's the story of an archaeologist who is on a on a dig in Egypt and he is of course looking for the big find like any archaeologist would from all of those movie depictions and he actually uncovers a tomb and lo and behold there is a a preserved mummy in the tomb which is a a tremendous find but he starts to see that some of the Egyptian burial rituals that he's very familiar with as an Egyptologist have been either not completed or that the tomb has been desecrated in some way. And I thought that that was a really interesting way to kind of examine this erasure of Lucia. And I wondered in what ways you kind of, uh, the archaeologist goes on to kind of try to correct some of this damage that was done to this to this tomb of, of this deceased woman way back when in Egypt. And I wondered if you kind of felt the same about you were trying to kind of, I wouldn't say rehabilitate, but kind of give some kind of life or, or kind of help along the spirit of Lucia Joyce in some way. The, yeah, but both yes and no. Okay, so the, the answer to that question is yes. And it also includes the, the notion that it, it's already, always already wrong to do that. Um, I was a, an art historian, um, you know, when I left school and went to study art history at um, university and, and did uh, philosophical aesthetics, particularly surrealism up until um, PhD level, uh, where PhD I didn't complete for various reasons, none of which we need to go into here. <laughs> um, but um, I was also always very interested in um, Egyptian um, magic uh, and Egyptian representation. Uh, and the the British history with um, Egypt, uh, and particularly in the kind of uh, archaeology uh, of Egyptology, uh, is is not ethically uh, great. Uh, rather like the Elgin Marbles or the Benin Bronzes, um, the British Museum is full of, of dead Egyptian um, 
people who have been disinterred from their tombs and taken elsewhere, right? So that process of trying to, of seeing that someone's uh, afterlife, the important thing about Egypt, Egypt uh, and its art, the burial art, is that it secures a happy afterlife for the dead person. That's the reason it's there, uh, is to ensure that they can find their way to heaven and to account for themselves uh, at the weighing of the heart uh, and to eventually live with the things that are in their tomb. It's about that process, that a process is about securing someone's afterlife. Okay, so once it's desecrated in any way, that afterlife, the entire afterlife, which those people authentically uh, believed in is ruined uh, and and doesn't happen, uh, which is a crime against them. So tomb raiders, obviously, from the past uh, and uh, archaeologists from the present and the nearer past are creating a kind of desecration. Now, they can desecrate on top of the desecration. Uh, as much as they like, okay? So they might find a desecrated tomb and attempt to um, fix it, uh, rather like that Spanish uh, amateur painting fixer did with that picture of (laughs) some poor saint and then ended up making him look a monkey. They can desecrate on top of a desecration. um, And I feel that perhaps that's what I was anxious that my process of writing the book was, was a kind of always already desecrating. It's not quite as simple as that because there's some other things that that people have have not picked up on. I think um, in the paratextual material between the <laughs> between the chapters too, which is a kind of spell casting of its own, uh, which attempts to kind of remedy some of those things. Uh, so the book also um, provides the spell of the opening of the mouth, which um, under the its own terms, I'm hoping is a kind of uh, an attempt to to make up for, at least to recognise what is inherently um, negative about the act of writing about something, about appropriation. Um, I've done a lot of academic work uh, on appropriation throughout my life. So um, my first master's dissertation uh, was on Georges Bataille, the surrealist philosopher, uh, and his notion of appropriation. Um, and again, too uh, much to go into here. But I have a very uncomfortable relationship with the appropriation. I both think it's a terrible thing and absolutely necessary, uh, not for the appropriator, um, but for the people being appropriated. I think it's one form of attack that um, marginalized people can have, oppressed people can have uh, against their appropriators to be appropriated in a particular way, because the person who does the appropriating changes when they appropriate something. It's never what it expects. The person who's doing the appropriating never gets what, they never get the thing that they want. They become the thing that they take. And that's one of the things that I think um, my writing, at least in this um, kind of form, um, is is um, aware to, is the fact that the act for me of doing this work is, a, is an act that changes me. And it's not that I'm taking things that don't belong to me. It's that I'm opening myself up to things that are different from, from I am what I am. And I think this is where I both feel guilty about having done it and both feel that that was the correct thing to have done. So I'm probably asking these questions in the wrong order, but was it always (laughs) apparent to you that you should, that you should kind of intersperse the the chapters about Lucia's life with this archaeological Egyptology kind of narrative? It would be great if I said yes, but Sam's sitting right there. No, because Sam, because the other thing those, that 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 whole um, section of the book does uh, is it acts as a kind of, uh, of as a narrative forward moving structure, so that as you go through the book, you can follow that narrative. And there are links between 
that the, the narratives that you're given in the Egyptology sections and the links that are given in the in the larger sections and it allows you to have a sense of forward progress in the book, uh, which wasn't present as as um, Sam rightly pointed out to me uh, in some of the earlier drafts, which were uh, confusing. I think <laughs> so. This is it acts as both a kind of uh, structural um, uh, skeleton for the book and it also. Um, shows if you're alert to allegory uh the actual what's at stake in the doing of the book too so it was sam's idea um sam well the, the form of it wasn't sam's idea sam pointed out that, that it might need some kind of uh, structure uh, to, in order to kind of handhold the reader a little bit otherwise uh, they'll get lost and disinterested uninterested um it, with what's happening in the main run of the book um so he suggested something along those lines, and then I went away and came back with something completely different. So, yeah, so, <laughs> I don't know whether that's how you remember it, Sam. <laughs> that's very much how I remember it. I mean, so it's kind of magic for me. My feeling was that was it. It was it was confusing, and basically, Lucia is a book that operates on a very high level intellectually. I mean, it's very emotional, and it gets you right in the back of the brain. Uh, but that too is bewildering because there's so much pain and kind of horror in there that you're you're almost buffeted from chapter to chapter and then there's all these other ideas going on lots of which alex has been speaking about now that you're trying to keep up with and i i my feeling was that as a reader you you almost need a ladder to reach up to the the level that alex is operating on and i think i think that might even have been what i said to him that we need this structure that's going <laughs> to keep keep the reader going forward Sounds and, familiar. and help explain to a certain explain extent what you're doing but without over explaining it of course and um yeah i mean it's tricky because it's not it's not a kind of abc type book i mean the the there's not even really a kind of um, a movement of characters between the chapters or places uh, except a few that are a kind of um very obviously of the same piece of work chopped up so you do need structure, I think. Um, I think, I mean, Sam might be overstating its intellectual level. I think it is. I mean, obviously, <laughs> not I think with all books, <laughs> I think with all books, you can, you, particularly if you wrote them, uh, you can spend a lot of time, you know, kind of working on the machinations of, <laughs> of their, um, their inner workings. Um, but I think that there is, there's a visceral reaction, as Sam points out, to be had from the material and a kind of aesthetic one, too. So that there, there's a kind of um, surrealist aesthetic running through lots of parts of it that you can take, uh, not for pleasure, but you can take at face value. The, the kind of emotional work of the book uh, isn't arcane. It, it's supposed to make you feel angry uh, and upset uh, and um as things go by, and perhaps later, uh, emotionally kind of um, weary. I think those are the, those are relatively obvious and, and clear things for a book to do. Um, but I think, in terms of, of allowing someone the stamina to read the book, it's good to have these kind of waypoints, which the Egyptology section allows you to work to have. One way of thinking about it is, you know, the book is kind of a labyrinth and you don't quite know where you're going, where you're going to be taken yeah, next. Sure. And there's a lot of darkness. And, it, you know, this is Ariadne's thread that takes you through. Although, of course, it's a special kind of thread that also takes you to difficult and I agree. unsettling I mean, I'm, places. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but also, um, I think that it's, it's about death and being dead. As well, those are things that that's it's it's not about recreating a life. I mean, there, there are lots of other fictional treatments of Lucia Joyce's life that you can read. There's not there's not a that's not an issue. Um, this that wasn't what this book was about. So I mean, it, rather like I always imagine 
a dead, the, an afterlife being non-linear, I think, and piecemeal and about memories and about failures and about decay uh, and about kind of corruption, things falling to pieces. And I think that's much more how the, the book works. Um, and it's also about things not being right. I mean, one of the things that no one picks up on is loads of the names are spelled incorrectly. And <laughs> loads of the details are wrong. Okay, so that like, for example, James Joyce uh, and, and family famously had cats. Okay, that's, that's the it's very famous thing that people know about James Joyce, that he had and loved cats. So I give them a rabbit. Right, which isn't a cat, to, to alert people <laughs> to the fact that this isn't supposed to be accurate. Okay, And they also lived in very small houses. Everybody knows they lived in flats and they had this kind of peripatetic life until Ulysses made him, them loads of money, kind of bumming around Europe, being very poor. So I give them a nice big house with a nice big garden um, because <laughs> that's not right. Those things are right. And it, this is a, it would, you would imagine that would alert people to, to the kind of status as a piece of fact of the book which it clearly isn't and then you you would hope that people would think so well if he's if he's not if he's not just stupid which is possible and doesn't know what he's doing then why is he making these things not right when he could have just put cats in instead of rabbits he could have made them live in smaller places he can clearly write a scene why didn't he just write the scenes of lucia joyce's life and the answers to those questions are what the book's about well, I found I found a lot the depiction of a lot of the peripheral characters in the book to be really fantastic. There's Lucia's friend in the asylum. There's the horrible dentist. <laughs> that that's that might be my most lasting memory of this yeah, book. I had a tooth actually, out last week. <laughs> I wish I hadn't written it. Yeah, <laughs> but the depiction of the dentist that in the asylum that pulls out all of Lucia's teeth to prepare her for dentures. There's the opening scene. And taking your point, Alex, about this is a book about death, where. It opens in the 1980s when Lucia has has just died, and the, the funeral director is preparing her her body for for burial. I, I found those depictions of the peripheral characters so imaginative, and and they really felt real to me. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your prolific imagination and with Sam because I know that Lucia is just one of the books that you guys have worked on together maybe you want to kind of either one of you talk to talk a little bit about kind of the collaboration you have and Sam how you keep up with Alex's <laughs> Alex's incredible output of of books and ideas and imagination um, well, I suppose the short answer is we don't quite keep up because Alex has written quite a few books <laughs> that we, we are yet to publish. I mean, we intend to catch up, but we've got a we've got a few slow. at the bank. <laughs> and uh, so, I have to, you know, they can't just publish. You know, it can't be Gally Beggar Press, uh, the Alex Phoebe Press, because they have other. They only do, they don't do that many books every year, so it was unfair of me to take up all the slots. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a so now I'm press, just though. making the books. <laughs> I'm just making them twice as long now. So. Just, <laughs> <laughs> so my next book is uh, the last one was about 180,000 words and and this one's already knocking at 150,000. I haven't started the glossary yet, so um, So we're making them long. I think yeah, that's I didn't know that. that's it's good. a pleasure to work with Sam. Yeah, well I haven't told you. He hasn't seen anything yet. Well, one chapter. So um <laughs> 
but the general gist is I, I mean I write it and then Sam tells me what's wrong with it and then I go away and fix it and he's excellent um uh, sometimes it, it kind of rankles to hear it but he's <laughs> he's never he's never wrong because the book that comes out afterwards is better um it may be just that if I work on things longer they get better anyway but I think it's much more likely to have some kind of Samism in there well, it'd be so much more interesting if you told me that there was like some great like battles and uh, you know fights about you know hey, what, look, what's I mean, in the my book. My feeling what's... is publishers have it hard enough already without me cutting up rough. So <laughs> if, if and, and the other thing is if, if it depends. I mean, it's a pleasure to work with Sam and Eloise um, because they're both so bright. So when you're when you're talking to them, they're not coming back with you know nonsense stuff that, that you know just you know put a car in it because people like cars it's not that kind of stuff it's it's they've understood what it is that i'm doing and they've they've said okay well you know what what about this and then i have I, it's fun for me to go away then and try and work out what to do how to do the things that sam wants without doing anything that i didn't want to do and so then we just like with the with the um uh, Egyptology sections Sam asked for a bit more structure so I came back with a whole bunch of Egyptology which is not what he asked for he didn't say I think this needs more Egyptology in it um, <laughs> instead we got structure in a way that, that I thought you know that I wanted to do because I, I will if left to my own devices make it impossible to read that's that is just just a fact of me <laughs> because um, I think I have a, essentially an abusive relationship with the reader um, in literary fiction. I think that's one of those things that I want to stick it to the reader <laughs> who has the temerity to buy the book and then open it and read it. How dare they? Um, <laughs> or more to the point, it, it, <laughs> I like to play with form. Let's say I like to play with form instead. I <laughs> have... Dear readers, like <laughs> Alex Phoebe, he says this, but he also loves you. <laughs> yes, I do. Yes. Um, I think I think I should say something to. Um, well, it's not just me, of course. It's it's Ellie. So uh, so I I I tend to have you know um, with Lucia particularly Alex and Alex and me met, but. Ellie was also feeding me ideas, so I can't uh, I can't take all the credit for that. Uh, but yeah, Sam has to deliver the bad news. <laughs> it comes yeah. from both of it's, them. Uh, it's always good news. I mean, essentially, yeah. uh, this is the thing. And I write We're, quickly. I mean, yeah. if I was one of these people who labours over things for decades, then it would be much worse than it is. But I mean, generally, I, I try and get his edit, their edits back within a fortnight, uh, or perhaps a month, if it if it comes to it. Because yeah. most of the stuff is is doable, you know, and it's tremendously exciting as an editor because you know you get this amazing manuscript where each sentence in itself is a you know a brightly polished gem, and it amounts to so much more. And then you can see that it's going to be still better once Alex has 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 done the next the next stage of the set of magic tricks i suppose you could describe it as very much like that egyptology thing because of course i had no idea that was coming back as alex says and you know you say to someone can you add some structure and they go away and give you a, a series of descriptions of unearthing a tomb it's just brilliant it's the last thing anyone can think of apart from apart from the genius writer yeah, i always i think it's unfair sam that that you don't get 
Perhaps I saw the, a book the other day that had um, acknowledgements in the back, uh, but not in the form of acknowledgements, but like like a um, credits, like in a in a film where it goes down and lists all the various people who've had something in there. I mean, because I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think I even come to forget the input that you've had on things, and you and Ellie. Uh, and it seems kind of unfair to I for that we... to be the way that it is. I don't know. I think we get a lot of credit and a, a good editor should kind of be in, invisible, really. I mean, you think of the editors who aren't invisible, like Gordon Lish with yeah, Raymond Carver, Lish. of course, and it becomes yeah. quite controversial. I mean, Lish, actually what he did with Carver, I think it was brilliant, but you can see that it's difficult. And otherwise, you know, even Max Perkins is tremendously famous, but he's not rightly not taking the credit for Ernest Hemingway or anyone else. I mean, that's not the way it works. Did you watch that? Um... The Hemingway documentary? <laughs> yeah, I, oh, don't know. I haven't looked at it yet. Um, it yes, it, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm three episodes okay, in good. out of the six. Oh, I'm absolutely <laughs> right. loving it, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Okay. I should do it. So, so Alex, your, uh, and Sam, your fantasy novel Mordu is scheduled to release in the United States I think in September. Tour Press in the US is going to be published it and of course Galley Beggar published it in the UK and that's is that's the first of a, is it a trilogy? Yeah, it's the first of a trilogy. I'm just um, writing the last parts of book two uh, before I kind of forge off to book three. Um, they're they're quite closely linked, so um, it's more of a separation, uh, a kind of physical separation, than it is a uh, one in my head. Um, yeah, so that's that's a that's a different thing. I think Sam had far more kind of nuts and boltsy type stuff to say about Mordu than he did with um, Playthings and Lucia. And I think that's because it is much um, much more traditional than the kind of way it tells stories. Sam made me do more world building, I think, in that one. That was the main thing, particularly early on. So the first few, I think if most of your uh, input was, was in the early chapters, wasn't it, Sam? Yeah, there, there was some in the later chapters. Um, oh, yeah, because you didn't even you wanted it to end. Like about, yeah, oh, yeah. And I did put in this whole uh, kind of uh, Emile Zola's germinal pastiche that he made me take out. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> Zola fans. <laughs> castrating people and parading around with their genitals on a stick. He made me take that out. <laughs> wow, well, that get it in seems there like Volume two. It's going to yeah, be in volume two. Well. Yeah, the other exciting thing is, I mean, there are, there are three books in the Morgi trilogy, but uh, are we allowed to share this, Alex, that you have prequels and all kinds of oh, other yeah. ones? <laughs> yeah, share away. Yeah, so, so yeah. Know, things go well, there's going to be a, a lot, a lot, a lot of this incredible world. Yeah. So, so Alex, I, you're, I know you're going to hate this question as any author would, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What... What kind of author would you call yourself? Um, you've written literary fiction and and fantasy. You probably maybe have even written in other types of forms or styles. Do you have, if if I had to describe you in two or three words, how how should I do it? Mm, um, I've kind of vowed in my head to give a different answer each time anybody asks me this question. So see, I knew you. Would, I knew you would hate it. <laughs> No, it's fine. Um, I mean, <laughs> like I was uh, uh, an art historian and philosophical aesthetician, 
I'm primarily a surrealist writer. Okay, so surrealism has a notion of realism built in. Okay, so the more realist of my surrealist material tends to be written in literary fiction, and the more fantastic of the surrealist material tends to be written in fantasy. But primarily, what you're looking at is a kind of uh, what used what is known in art historical time terms of dissident surrealism. Uh, which is a surrealism not coming through the Andre Bretonian school, but coming through the Bataillon school of of surrealist practice. Um, <laughs> this is a, I'm, I'm saying that now without having thought about it properly. I'm not sure that this is actually true, but I think it's probably true. I've always been a surrealist, and I think that's the kind of writer I probably am. Um, yeah, that's just three Are words. There... A surrealist writer, three words, <laughs> including an article. <laughs> um. I- Apart from the the more do books, I don't want to not kind of impress the uh, what a, an accomplishment and what a big body of work that is. But um, how many other book ideas do you have kind of like floating around out there? And how many have you disclosed to Sam? Oh, well, I, I keep on sending them to Sam. He just doesn't read them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever send me that? Yes, about five times over the past two years. But um, so, literally, so. so literally you'll like, you'll like say to him, like, how about a book about this? And no, then, it's more like there's a whole bunch of books okay. that I wrote in the past before I met Sam, and I keep okay. on trying to place them somewhere. There's, but um, I, they're, not, they're not really good enough. I'm sure <laughs> it's, there's, a, there's a novella I've got. That um, yeah, yeah, I, there's novellas. I'm there's going to be a happy time when I print it out and read it and realise that I should have published it five years ago. But, yeah, well, don't worry about that for now. The thing it's is, the I get Pulitzer. Ch- it's waiting right there. <laughs> but it's it's all material I wrote like when I was much younger and less good at writing. Like I get better all the time um, as the more I practice. So I'm not sure the other stuff's good. Sometimes I look back at it and I'm, I'm appalled. Um, but then I look at the stuff I wrote yesterday and I'm appalled too. So I'm never quite sure I can trust myself. But um, I don't think Sam's read my first published book as yet. So um, that we could look Uh-oh. at. But I've written science fiction, um, crime books, uh, literary fiction, all sorts of different things. There was I wrote a short story that Sam said he wouldn't publish, but that got published um, by the London Magazine recently. So there was it's not that so I don't there, mix. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it wasn't more that, but I did. I did. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Sam doesn't have to publish everything. <laughs> it's fine, but I'll write anything. It's a, whatever comes into my head. I'm... Is there some little big idea that you're like? that's in the back of your head that you can't wait to like have some time to like write down. Yeah. Well, um, there's been the long planned reconciliation of Lacanian and Bataillon, um, surrealist philosophy and psychoanalysis, uh, based, uh, around Jean Renoir's film, uh, Day in the Countryside, starring Sylvia Maclès, who was the wife of both Georges Bataille and Jacques Lacan, uh, a novel called The Picnic, uh, that um, is already contracted. Sam's already bought it, um, but I haven't had time to write because I've been writing so much Mordew. So um, at the moment, I don't have to write Mordew anymore. I'm going to be on that and I will write that and then I shall turn my attentions uh, wherever they lead me uh, at that point. That's as I'm still alive. <laughs> I like to tell people that my granddad died when he was 52 and my dad oh died when he was 52 and I'm 51 this year. So I got <laughs> I got a year. I'm going to get Mordew out of the way so at least my children have some kind of inheritance. But <laughs> well, who knows? How many words a day do you think you write on average? Uh, none at the moment. I have really bad toothache, um, which is why I have my tooth taken out. And um, 
Emma and my son have been away uh, on a walking holiday with our dog uh, for the last week. So I've been primarily concentrating on getting Alice to school and back and tidying the house and doing all of the other things that need to be done. So I haven't done any writing for about two weeks. But if I do less than 2000 words a day, I feel very unhappy. Um, And if I can chalk up two and a half thousand words, I'm okay. But I'm on sabbatical next semester from work um, because I work as an academic too. So from September to December, I've promised myself I'm going to do 5,000 words a day just so I can get um, a very rough draft of the third book in the Morgy trilogy um, on paper so I can work on it uh, kind of in a more relaxed way prior to delivering it to Sam sometime in 2022. Yeah, so that. Okay, Sam. (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the last word on something about Alex that he's been too modest to tell us. <laughs> Alex is one of the one of the greatest writers of the 21st century. He is a genius, and uh, <laughs> I'm very lucky to work with him. And uh, I really do think that you know these books are going to last for a very long time. So Lucia play things more to you know these are things that uh, alex has done primarily but i have like this connection to them which is really quite a good a good stake for posterity that i'm very proud of well alex it's been a pleasure to talk to you today and i want to encourage all of our listeners in north america to run out to their local independent bookstore and purchase lucia by alex phoebe it's been out in the uk since when sam 2019 18, I think. I can't even remember. Yeah, 2018. I think it's 2018. 2018. Yeah. Biblioasis kind of put a stop on it because of COVID. So so if you are just late to the game in the UK, run out to your local bookstore and buy it. <laughs> yeah. It's probably out there. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. It was a pleasure talking to you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.